Hello and welcome to the HPP podcast. This week's episode is hosted by a guest who is part of the Health Promotion Practice Journal family. Enjoy. We are excited to have Dr. Christina Walter join us today for our episode exploring precarious work. Dr. Welter is a nationally recognized policy practitioner and practice-based researcher committed to helping organizations and their partners co-create equity-focused systems change. We are delighted to have you join us, Christina. Please share a bit more about yourself, your institution, and your partnerships. Thanks, Melissa, for hosting and for Health Promotion and Practice for inviting me. It is certainly exciting to be able to talk about our work. It is a unique experience for us, and we're really thankful for this. So my formal titles are as a clinical assistant faculty at the University of Illinois Chicago School of Public Health in the Health Policy and Administration Division. I'm also the director of our doctorate in public health leadership at UIC. And at UIC, I lead several different applied research projects, leadership and workforce development initiatives. And one of those is about this paper, which is talking about one of my projects as a principal investigator with the Center for Healthy Work. But what I wanted to share in addition to my official roles is a little bit more about my background because it helps shape the context for this podcast and the paper. Before I was at UIC, uh, I was the deputy director of the Cook County Department of Public Health. And so that is outside the city of Chicago. It's a jurisdiction of 2.5 million with 127 municipalities. It's one of the most geopolitically complex jurisdictions in the country. It has some of the wealthiest and the poorest communities in the nation. And of course, CCDPH, like many health departments, has been underfunded and under-resourced for a long time. So we learned through partnerships that we can maximize our assets and strengthen the system. And so this practice of really working with these partners influenced me greatly and still does today. And so much of my work is rooted then in, in practice with these partners. And so I work to really understand these collective strengths and expertise to help leverage those to co-create or build something new, innovative, and sustainable. And so by co-creating, we can all learn, not just for the product of the paper or the research or just what I learn, and we build leadership. And so this approach, the work between practice and academia, the marriage between the two has really helped design this project. So I wanted to just share a little bit about that background before we got started. Thanks, Christina. And I think one of the first questions I have for you for our discussion today is what is precarious employment? And how is it defined? How is it integrated into your work and also policy and organizations? Before I answer that question, and I know that's it's a new, uh, relatively new term to public health in particular and to healthcare, I really want to ground the conversation here by talking about what it means to do work on structural and social determinants of health. And so to do equity-based and racial justice work. I really think that we have to use our head and our heart. And we need to raise up the importance of really seeing people and acknowledging all of our own personal connections to the different forms of the work. So I wanna ask sort of rhetorically here to the virtual audience that we have, just to reflect for a minute and think about what does it mean to care for other people? And what people are caring for you? Think about the people that care for your family, they care for you and or that you care for. What do they do for you? Who are they? 
who are their families, who are the people that you care for, and what is the value of caring? And so it's helping us ground us in the fact that these are actual people and they have families and communities because I'm about to launch into what's going to sound like a formal definition. And I think sometimes we forget that these are, these are folks ourselves. These are people we work with and, and work for us and help us. So many precariously employed workers are people who in one way or another are in our community, but they're unseen. And so while our research is about helping public health take a larger role, in co-creating interventions and initiatives to really create healthy work. I think it's really important first to just remember that we're talking about these individuals here, real people, and that really makes a difference. So what is precarious employment? So when we define precarious employment, some of the characteristics are jobs that are insecure, they're not stable, or they're uncertain. They, the people who are precariously employed lack flexibility of their work hours. They often don't get any notice of when they're supposed to be at work or how long they're supposed to be at work. They also don't have control over those schedules or over those hours. And so that's hard to then really plan to do, do much else. They have limited social benefits. So like no sick pay, typically maybe no health insurance, retirement benefits, other things that some of us take for granted. There are low wages and economic uncertainty, and there's little opportunity for advancement typically in these jobs. And there's also often a lot of hazardous work happening or hazardous and dangerous conditions. And then lastly, I'll just say that the, the workers often have a lack of a voice, that they're unable to advocate for themselves from different improvements and protections. There's little protection against discrimination or exploitation. And one of the things that this leads to, because of the, the nature of precarious work, is wage theft. So another characteristic of a precarious employment, just to help make this real for people, is not paying the minimum wage or not paying for overtime hours or actually stealing a, a part of a person's hours. So just a couple of statistics to kind of make this real. In the 10 most populous states, one study found that 2.4 million workers lose $8 billion annually. That's $3,300 per year for a full-time worker and it affects 17% of the low-wage workforce. Another study that was actually done in this jurisdiction, the Cook County Department of Public Health, and it was a decade ago, but it still gives you a, a real sense that over 60% of the workers that were surveyed in that jurisdiction were underpaid by more than a dollar an hour. So these are people working, doing everything they're supposed to be doing and are not getting the wages that they, they deserve, just even for the total amount they've worked. And so, of course, the poverty rate among workers paid less than the minimum wage is over 21%, three times the rate for minimum wage workers who are people who are eligible for minimum wage. So this creates a perfect storm of poor, really poor employment. So who are some of the people, if we were to just think about the characteristics of people who are precariously employed? I'll just give you some description here. It might not be what we always thought. So the first thing just to say is nearly one in five adults work in what we call non-standard arrangements. And so these are precariously employed individuals. And typically the characteristics of these individuals are younger than we might think. The mean age of core contingent workers is around 40. They're more often Hispanic, nearly three in 10 core contingent workers are identified as Hispanic. They're less likely to have a high school degree. The proportion of contingent workers who reported not completing a high school degree is four times higher than standard full-time workers and, of course, have a low family income. 
contingent workers or precariously employed folks are three times more likely to have a low income than standard full-time workers. And so what does this mean for health? That's why we're here, right? What's the impact on health? All of that backdrop is where we want to intervene, but the impact on health is profound. We know from different studies that these precariously employed individuals have 40% increased risk of adverse cardiac outcomes than secure jobs. They have negative mental health outcomes. They have higher rates of occupational injury, particularly for folks who have multiple jobs like temp workers or subcontractors. And I think maybe the best unfortunate example that's more recent is for COVID-19. We know that Latinx and indigenous peoples and black and brown folks are seeing both higher morbidity and mortality due to COVID-19. And that one of the reasons that is coming out in the research right now has to do with the fact that this is due to long-term structural racism and the fact that some of these folks are precariously employed. And I'll talk about this a little bit later, but just quickly to remind everybody, folks going to precariously employed jobs, these are people who don't have access to paid sick leave, so they're going to work sick, possibly. The employers are not providing them PPE or they're not following good communicable disease guidance. So there's not a surprise, unfortunately, that we're seeing a higher percentage of precariously employed individuals being exposed to getting sick and unfortunately dying from COVID-19. So just a little bit more here to talk about precarious employment because it is a new concept, I think, in general to public health. So what are some of the trends? Why, why is this so important? Well, most of the research, at least pre-COVID, I, I can't speak to this post-COVID just yet. But as I said, one in five workers has this alternative work arrangement, and it has been increasing across all sectors. And so one survey from Deloitte found in 2018 that companies, this was an international survey of participating companies, reported that 37% of these respondents reported that they expected growth in either contractors, freelancers, or gig workers. So 37% expected growth in contractors, 22% as freelancers, and 28% as gig workers. All those categories are categories of precarious employment. So why is this happening? So the quick story here is that precarious employment is super complex. It has social, political, and economic roots. So we think about ourselves at least 30 years ago, maybe 40 years ago, when international growth and competition increased. So what did companies do? They had to look at ways to reduce cost so that they could be more competitive. And what happened is they started to get rid of what we call cost centers, like human resources, IT, other peripheral workforce like landscaping, maintenance, or things like distribution operations like trucking. All of those services were farmed out to contractors. They removed them for the company. So instead of paying for people, we're paying for services. So we removed this human element and the idea of covering folks to make sure that they're safe and healthy to now this service that gets provided. So David Wheel is sort of the, one of the people who has really written about this in a book called The Fissured Workplace. So we call this fissured work where businesses no longer hire employees, but services, and the cheapest service wins the contract. And so what that means is the lowest tier bidding can't afford to pay for benefits anymore, but they pay the lowest possible wage. And the other thing that's happening is that there are multiple tiers. In other words, no one employer that the employees are working for. They don't even know who their boss is anymore. So a person who's working at a hotel may be a cleaner for a company that has the contract for the hotel, 
that company may have another contract owner that is really managing the hotel contract. So they're three tiers down, this employer, this employee, this hotel cleaner doesn't even know who her boss is. So again, it creates this really perfect storm. So public health, and we'll get into this in just a minute, this, this creates a very difficult situation for public health. We like to work in workplaces. Most of our interventions are in workplaces because that's where we've done most of our research. Precarious employment does not have a workplace, nor, as you can start to see, as intervening at the individual level, something that's going to be effective because there are so many other complex factors. The individual you know, doesn't have stable hours, doesn't have benefits, and so it creates a very difficult situation for any person to be able to eat well or be active or do any of the things we would want them to do. So that's how our study got started in looking at what is precarious employment and how do we intervene outside the workplace. If you can tell me a little bit about the Center for Healthy Work and how that center has been structured to address some of the social determinants of health, the precarious employment needs, I, I would really love to hear about that. Sure, thank you. So first I wanted to say this, we at UIC are Center for Healthy Work and we are one of six total worker health centers. And for those of you who don't know, Total Worker Health is a, the National Institute for Occupational Health and Safety funded initiative. And it was born out of the rise in chronic disease that we saw have been seen over the last 40 some decades. And this observation that we spend most of our time at work. So some of the early chronic disease grants did focus on work, but there was an observation that we needed something unique to focus on workplaces in particular. So Total Worker Health was born. Many of the centers focus on workplace health and do amazing research with Total Worker Health. Our center is one of the primary ones that does then focus on community and systems change to address precarious employment. And we have the two main projects, and I'll be talking about one of them. One is in a, several neighborhoods in the city of Chicago that has some of the highest unemployment rates to study what does work mean? What's the intersection of work and health? And how, from a community perspective, can we address healthy work in that kind of a setting? The study that I'm going to talk about and address is thinking about how can we create policy and systems change at the systems level using cross-sectoral partnerships. Because precarious employment is so complex, Again, intervening at the individual level becomes, becomes difficult. And so our Center for Healthy Work explores both of those sorts of questions. And the project that this paper is talking about was building the evidence to try to understand how can we do this? How can we take a PSE approach? So I'll move on and just share a little bit about our project then. And so I just started to kind of get into what were some of our driving concepts. So since precarious employment is complex and really intervenes at multiple levels, of course, that implies the social ecological model. So we know from the past work from Golden and Earp about the social ecological framework that public health has an opportunity to increase its activity at the community and policy activity level. So one of the papers from 2012 found that only 20% of the articles were reporting research at the community and policy level. And similarly, you know, trying to cross levels was only another small percent. Most of the interventions were done at one or two levels, like individual and interpersonal level not multiple levels. So this is an opportunity in public health, whereas precarious employment is truly multi-level. It goes from individual all the way up to the system. 
then thinking about authentic community engagement. So if we're gonna be talking about precariously employed individuals, worker centers, other worker advocacy organizations, municipal employees, health departments, you know, how do we authentically engage and really work together? And I'll talk about sort of our journey on that in a minute. And then cross-sectoral collaboration, thinking of effective ways to do this have to be authentically engaged with diverse partners. And so, you know, Public Health 3.0 and Freudenberg all call for these new skills in public health about how do we work together with others that are really different from ourselves. And then finally, policy and systems change. So as I just said, with some of the analysis of the social ecological model, you know, we know that to truly intervene effectively with social determinants of health, we've got to be hitting policy and systems levels, community levels. We also know um, Yuka Asada and her colleagues published a paper that analyzed how well health researchers were doing on those upstream kinds of interventions, and they found there were very few. So we wanted to take a PSC approach, policy systems and environmental change, and really talk about what we call health-related interventions. How do we create health-related interventions versus health-directed interventions? So health-directed are like worksite wellness, which is workplace health, but health-related are more intervening at that community level, so like paid sick leave. So that helped us sort of start to think about our design. So the first thing I just want to say about the design of this study is you have to start first with your positionality. So our research team was a very diverse group of students, practitioners, staff, and faculty from multiple different divisions at our school of public health. So health policy and administration, community health sciences, environmental and occupational health. But the truth was we weren't diverse in terms of representing the workers themselves or people of color. And so we had to really think about, you know, how, what research design authentically engages and includes people of color from the population that we're trying to work with at the design stage. And so action research is one of those kinds of approaches. And there's a phase in action research called pre-understanding where the researchers and the research team really humbly gathers information to better understand and really authentically engage and build their learning as to what is happening and what is going on. And so that's what we did. We chose an action research design and the three phases of action research are from Springer are look, think, and act. So our study was really about looking and then thinking to analyze the data with what became now our worker center partners and ACT, which is the resulting intervention. So this paper talks about a unique application of creating pre-understanding so that we can better understand what others are doing to inform us in public health of what we're not so great at, <laughs> which is addressing precarious employment, structural determinants of health, and these really complex problems. So we wanted to better understand how other people were doing that. So that's what we did. Great, thank you. And I also want to know a little bit more about your key findings, as well as what about the findings were most striking and most striking to you all, as well as those participating in the action research component, the community, the workers themselves. Yeah, so what we did was to conduct, there were two components to our study. So we did about 40 interviews and the interviews were done with worker advocacy organizations and public health and healthcare organizations. And we were comparing perceptions of precarious employment, what their perceived roles were of these different entities around precarious employment 
what were they doing already to address precarious employment? And then what did they think could be done to improve precarious employment? And so right off the bat, you know, once we analyzed the findings, we were not surprised, but nevertheless struck by the differences between public health and healthcare's definition of precarious employment and their level of where they were at with PSE change expertise versus our worker advocacy partners. So just in examples of how public health described precarious employment, and I'm going to read a quote that is in the paper that I think is illuminating from someone in public health that knows that we're not doing enough. That in this quote, um, this individual said, it's this notion that we reduce everything to individual risk factors and individual behavior is a mistake. We know that they play a much less important role in these broader structural factors. So public health has a tendency to look at individual behavior change and interpersonal behavior change. And so our findings from the health side of this show that there's such opportunity to expand our definition. When we went to talk to the labor advocacy organization, the responses were much more profound in two ways. The first was we heard so much about lived experiences, which is why I grounded the beginning of this in people. For example, one of the quotes from the worker centers and worker advocacy folks said, when you're making a low wage, you're just surviving. Wellness is not even on your mind, it's survival. And that just really tells us that, you know, trying to intervene at that individual level is just not even feasible, that the folks are just trying to survive. And then when we asked the worker centers and advocacy folks how they defined what to do, their answers were remarkable. We learned so much about what they've already been doing, quite frankly, for decades to address issues of racial injustice and inequity in the way precarious employment is intervening. So here's an example, and you can just hear the difference. The decline in the standard of living because of the nature of this structure of constantly subcontracting and using temporary agencies so nobody's responsible, and the end workers lose. So they already understand what we had to learn in terms of the causes of precarious employment. And they went on to say, we need structural transformation in order to really intervene into precarious employment. We need to gain back the power our power, the workers' power, by redefining work and having policies and structures and laws that make it possible. And until we start doing that, I don't think we're going to have healthy work. That was a worker center saying that. So you could tell they already had a philosophical and deep, rich knowledge of what to do. So the second thing we did that I, I didn't mention earlier is we did a content analysis of the transcripts to look for the kinds of things that were mentioned. And just simply put, because I don't want to repeat the entire paper here, but just again to show the expertise differences, no surprise that our content analysis found that the worker centers and worker advocacy organizations, 62% of the time they operated at this policy level compared to 38% of the time public health or healthcare operated at the policy level. So almost twice as often. And we saw that pretty consistently that labor was operating on these, you know, the health interventions that were structural, whereas public health was operating on downstream kinds of interventions on activities. So that again told us they know what they're doing. They know how to worker centers know what to do. And so that helped get us to our capacity building initiative. The last thing I'll just say is what was so great and refreshing is everybody wanted to partner that 
Public health knew that it needed to learn from others to address these root causes. And labor knew that there was an opportunity in, and, uh, and I'll explain, there's a really key leverage point that I'll share at the end about COVID, that how positioning precarious employment around health is incredibly important and strategic for policy change. So there was a possible win-win. So we presented our findings then um, to our constituents in 11 different meetings and to help build our initiative, which we called the Healthy Work Initiative. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the steps and how action learning, that process was integrated into the capacity building initiative itself? Sure, let me just share a few of the key takeaways because I already shared the difference in knowledge base, the difference in skills and expertise, and this desire to collaborate. So in analyzing all of the, the kind of the key findings, it helped us and then presenting it back to most of the people we talked to helped us come to some key conclusions. So the first one was the fact that there was this lack of knowledge of precarious employment in public health, what it really was, what it meant, what it felt like to be precarious employed. And then we knew worker centers had this area of expertise. So we thought a key part of this capacity building initiative needed to be for worker centers to provide technical assistance to public health. That's not typical. Typically, public health is in the lead. We are the ones, if not facilitating the conversation, providing the information. This is a power shift that is really important for public health to realize. And while it's certainly happening, I think it can happen even more. So one key piece was paying worker centers to provide us and healthcare with technical assistance for not only the content of precarious employment, but how to intervene, how to do policy and systems change. So public health needs more concrete skills. Like when I often now talk about power analysis and power mapping, there aren't that many people in public health that know what that means, but the worker centers sure do and the workers do. So that was an example of a skill that we needed to learn. Or theory of change. Theory of change is common in public health for evaluation theory. And we're not really talking about it for evaluation theory per se. It's about the theory in which you do your work and worker centers have a theory of change often. You asked about action learning. So a lot of knowledge and skill transfer in public health is competency-based. It's individual skill building trainings that are targeted for me and myself as the worker to learn how to conduct a case investigation, right? Action learning is more of a systems process. It's an ongoing process of learning whereby a coach helps prompt critical thinking of a particular shared problem with a group of people who then work through to address the problem by learning skills and learning knowledge, but applying it in real time, hence action learning. So precarious employment, as I have already said, is not going to get addressed overnight. And so we couldn't just do a one you know, short-term training. We knew that we had to provide space and place for reflection, for dialogue and application, and then failing forward and learning for what worked and what didn't work for public health and healthcare to really understand. And then the last key finding and kind of connection to capacity building is collective learning, which is implicit in action learning, but we called it out because we felt it was really important to really in the field of public health to, to acknowledge that this was learning with our partners and learning in real time. So based on this work, we created the Healthy Work Collaborative, which 
I'll just share a little bit. We are working on other pieces of information sharing and publication for the Healthy Work Collaborative, but it was a multi-sectoral, cross-sectoral, action learning, technical assistance-based capacity building initiative that ran in 2018 based on the results of this action research study for cross-sectoral teams of labor and public health to come together and address a problem that they shared. So an example was looking at paid sick leave in suburban Cook County. And so how can we work to get paid sick leave to be more of a widely instituted policy? And so now the Healthy Work Collaborative is actually in its third year, fast forward to 2021, and we're collecting evidence to track sort of its impact and what's, what's happening. And you mentioned earlier about COVID-19 and that you were going to talk a little bit about that towards the end of our episode. And the Healthy Work Collaborative what happened during COVID-19 and why was this work even more important during this period of time? Yeah, so we were very thankful to have some of these relationships already in place during COVID-19. As I've already alluded to, having these partnerships, one of the key really important pieces is that the worker centers have direct connection to the workers. And hearing the stories of what was happening to the workers during COVID-19 that I've already alluded to, being forced to go to work, they didn't have sick leave, not getting PPE, not getting appropriate distancing at their workplace, and getting sick and dying, and still experiencing wage theft, by the way. And there are many reports coming out now to document this. Because of those relationships and hearing some of those stories, Public health, at least here in some of the, the participants of the Healthy Work Collaborative and our partners, and with the conversation with the worker centers, started to realize we were the only ones, public health, public health agencies, were the only ones positioned that had the lead authority to do something. Communicable disease code, usually at the state level and often then at the county or local level, takes precedent during a pandemic. So to say you must obliged by these regulations and these set of recommendations. So public health was put into um, a much more impactful regulatory function. So because we had this, we had a much better sense of how, of course it was terrible anyway, but to hear the stories and the real time issues that were happening, then to turn around and say, wait a minute, we actually can do something about this, you know, really led to some wonderful partnerships here, at least in the, the state of Illinois, and I think elsewhere across the nation. It is still by no means enough, but to just have that realization. And I will say here in Illinois, because of these relationships, we were able to bring the attorney general in. We were able to do statewide webinars to make sure all of the health departments knew of their communicable disease authority. We were able to actually bring forth some of these cases that were some of the businesses that weren't complying. I will be honest, there's a lot more to do and we didn't do enough, but it was a, a big difference in terms of where we had been in terms of our authority. The other thing I just want to share that I think is important because of these relationships, the way we've approached contact tracing is, is much different. And so for example, in Cook County, Cook County gave money to their contact tracing dollars to the worker centers, as well as CBOs, community-based organizations, to help build education and build power around their rights and to help promote distribution of resources to promote uh, quarantine and isolation. So without getting into the weeds for sake of time, just to say that those relationships continued to take more of a racially just approach to build power and build capacity for contact tracing. 
What's next for the center as well as resources that others can connect with the precarious employment work? Yeah, thank you. So, you know, I will be honest with you, we are helping to lead the evaluation both in the city of Chicago and with Cook County because of this unique relationship to help support the connection with with labor and health with our health department partners. And so that's been really exciting. Our Center for Healthy Work has a great website and it has a variety of resources available, not only of peer-reviewed publications, but we have case studies of all of the resulting Healthy Work Collaborative projects that you can read about. So what the problem was, what was done for policy and systems change, what were the lessons learned, and what was the impact? And then we also have links to articles that talk about precarious employment and describe other study findings from the other project that I mentioned. So that's a great place to visit. And then we have just applied for our second round of funding from NIOSH, so fingers crossed about that. But we, I will just say as I close that this work has forever changed me and who I am and what I do. While I came into this project authentically with wanting to co-create and build leadership, I have been just transformed by what I've seen, by what's happening with two workers and though how amazing worker centers are and working with the workers to build their power, to take back what is theirs and has been theirs. And I'm really humbled by the fact that I've been able to learn from them over these past three to four years. It's just a real privilege and, and hopefully I'll be able to continue to do it. Thank you, and very important work and part of public health. The total workforce, very important work, and also the contribution to the understanding of total worker health as a concept in public health. Even for training of future practitioners, do you see this space increasing and the opportunities there pre-COVID as well as post-COVID? Yeah, so one thing that we're trying to do is contribute to the literature on the approach that we took, this idea of pre-understanding. You know, that's a, a theoretical term, but it's an important one to really claim your position out, know your positionality, take the time to learn first in public health about our colleagues and what they can already do. And then embrace some of these other skills and techniques and information and find creative ways to help facilitate using our partners' assets. I think that 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 is like a, there's a research component to that, an evidence building process that came out of this that's, I think, important for future practitioners and how they work and operate in a health justice world. And then from a practice perspective, this resulted in impactful change at the policy and systems level. And it, and, and it, Really, this was like a 10-week process that the collaborative ran. It didn't have to take, and yes, it's been going for three years, but it kicked off, you know, within a short period of time. So I think funding more of these collaborative, collective building approaches with the thoughtful evidence to inform it is going to be needed. I also just want to acknowledge just humbly, because I think I've said it implicitly, I want to acknowledge our research team at UIC and how much we've grown. I didn't say that this next round of funding, the application moved to participatory action research. So that's another transition. So we were very planful to to know we couldn't ask for participation when we didn't know what we were doing ourselves with precarious employment. But now, should we be funded, our team includes the worker center leadership and it is a participatory design process. So we would be engaging with them. So I also want to acknowledge so many of them and what they've done. 
And Dr. Walter, at the start of our conversation, you mentioned head and heart, that this work requires a lot of head and heart work. And we've heard about different experiences from the workers, but how do you see that integrating into the worker changes as well? Have they mentioned the heart as well? That's a great question. And I don't want to speak for where they're at. We've primarily been working through the worker centers, but what I will say that what I hear in the stories of the, that are coming out, for example, from COVID-19 are their lived experience. So there's a report that was released by several of the worker centers here called the COVID-19 jungle. And there, I think around 70 worker stories that they interviewed about their experiences. So I think that they're always speaking from their heart. That's what we, I, I'll say I have to learn and constantly remember. I hope that our passion in public health comes through and we're able to do that. And there is that back and forth, you know, and we're definitely moving in that direction. Thank you again, Dr. Walter, for joining us today and sharing about your experiences with the community and addressing precarious employment. We know that this field will continue to develop, grow, but also have many implications for policy and action research in the future. So thank you for sharing your experiences. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was truly a pleasure to be able to tell our story and hopefully shape a little bit of the future for both research and practice. Thank you for listening to this week's episode from the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know. You can find more from us on our website, social media, Sophie, and Sage. And you can find all of these links in the podcast description. Take care.